Exodus chapter 20. And this, this lesson is brought to you because it didn't seem like a good idea to do it in worship with children. So we are doing adult content for Sunday school. Can I be excused? Can I be excused? You're old enough to be here, Wayne. <laughs> Maybe. Now, if you can walk the corridors at Campbell County High, you can definitely you can handle, this. handle this. Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> yeah, you guys, Colin and Nakaya, you're supposed to be in with Kenny and Marilee and Mr. Galvin. Okay, well... Our text is short. It is Exodus 20:14. You shall not commit adultery. Let me pray for us. Father, we need your help and your strength so that we can understand your word and apply your word to our hearts and lives. We know that you love chastity, that you want us to make right use of our sexuality. And Father, we pray that you would help us to do that as we confront uh, these sins that are common in our culture and in our churches and probably even in our church. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the truth, to love the truth, and to live the truth because we love your Son, who is the truth. We thank you that he is our bridegroom. Help us to live and be pure for him. In Jesus' name, amen. So, yes. This morning's sermon, transposed to adult Sunday school. <laughs> that this is a complicated topic in one sense, what is forbidden in the seventh commandment, precisely because our culture doesn't really think that anything is forbidden by the seventh commandment, except possibly child abuse. But there are no sexual sins other than perhaps adultery or cheating on your partner without consent is how our culture would phrase that or child abuse but that is not the case there are many different kinds of sexual sins out there that are forbidden by this commandment against adultery so we're going to look at them under three headings sins against providence sins against love sins against life sins against providence are essentially having a problem with the sexuality that God has given you. So God made you male or female. We talked about that at length in two sermons two and three weeks ago. So to sin against that is to say, I don't want to be male. I don't want to be female. That's an obvious one. I don't think anybody in here has a problem with that particular sin. But nonetheless, that is a sin. A bigger one that's much more common in our circles is this despair over your relationship status. It's not that I'm sad to be male or female, but I am definitely sad to be single or to be married to this person who is a terrible person. Or I'm a widow. Oh, I had a wonderful spouse, we had a wonderful relationship, and God just took that and where does that leave me? I want to be married. I need to be married. I was married maybe for decades, and now I'm not. How do I, how do I deal with that? Well, the seventh commandment forbids despair over all of these situations. 
God says, in addition to being content with your sexuality as male or female, you're also called by this commandment to be content with your sexuality as single, married, divorced, widowed. Whatever your relationship status is, this commandment calls you to find your sufficiency in Christ. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how marriage is indeed a way to be chaste. But it is not a way to be chaste that God has given to everyone. Just as we also said that work is a way to be chaste. Not everyone can work. Some people are too sick. Some people are too old. Some people are too injured. And to say, I can't be chaste because this thing that most of the world can do most of the world has a spouse. That's actually not true in the United States. Less than It's only about 45% of American adults who are married. So we married people in here. We're the minority. You singles are the majority. But the commandment says, don't despair. God has given you not only your sexuality, but also given you a way to express that sexuality. And that might be singleness, that might be marriage, that might be widowhood or divorce. But don't think, whichever of those categories you fall into, you are not to think, well, since I'm not in the married category, my sexuality is a liability. I I can't do anything with this. My femininity is wasted. My masculinity is wasted because I don't have a spouse or because I have the wrong spouse. It's not true because ultimately, right, what are we made for? We're not made for sexual pleasure. We're made for God. He made us for himself. So that doesn't mean it's easy to live as single, married, divorced, or widowed, all of those present their own set of challenges. But there is a God-honoring way to live in all of those statuses. There's a way to be chaste, to use your sexuality rightly in each one of those. So, moving to the second category, the sins against love, the ones that everybody is waiting for. Right. <laughs> These sins are forbidden by the commandment. Now, we posited at the outset that all the Ten Commandments speak specifically of the worst sin in that category. So, the worst kind of disrespect is to dishonor your parents who have given you everything. The worst kind of sexual sin is here, under point A, adultery. This is not just a violation of the created order, but it's also a violation of your marriage covenant, what God made you to be, what you promised in getting married. So, and the worst kind of adultery is double adultery, two married people sleeping with each other. Uh, And then there's single adultery where one party is married and the other party is not. But regardless... We all know what adultery is, a violation of that marriage covenant. Something that's forbidden by this commandment. The same goes for rape, non-consensual sexual activity. 
forbidden by the commandment. And fornication, this one, uh, is in our culture pretty much given a pass. But again, this is sexual activity between people who are not violating a marriage covenant, but who are simply engaging in sexual activity with one another. And I broke it down a little bit. It can be a one-night stand or an ongoing affair over months or years. You can have one partner or many, but all of these fall under the heading of fornication. And you'll notice that I did not put homosexuality on this list. That's because it's not a sin unto itself, regardless of what our culture says. It is already comes under the category either of adultery for married people or fornication for unmarried people. It is an incorrect and ungodly use of your sexuality. Chastity means using your sexuality rightly. Opposed to that are all forms of adultery and fornication. Now I did put bisexuality on here because that is an identity that demands fornication. To say, I am sexually interested in both males and females is to say, therefore, it's not in my nature to stay married or to keep myself only to her as long as we both shall live. That's not me. I'm bi. Well, no, right? To say that is to say, I need to fornicate. I am. Marriage is not a sufficient option for me to express my sexuality. So, another sin against love, the sin of pornography. That is viewing other people engaging in sexual activity or whatever leads thereto. Like the Westminster Confession says, lewd songs, pictures, dancings, stage plays, uh, we could add films, all of these things are sins against chastity. It's not a right use of your sexuality. So we talk about this in AP Lit, where, uh, who is it, Gregor Samsa, the hero of Kafka's story about the dung beetle, the metamorphosis, he wakes up one morning in his apartment in Vienna and he's turned into a giant bug. He has on his wall a picture of a woman in furs. She's wearing nothing but furs, the narrator tells us. And his sister wants to remove that picture from his room. She doesn't think that's appropriate for a bug to have that picture on the wall. And he goes up and covers it with his body. He's a giant beetle, like three feet long. And he just squats on that. What a great picture of pornographic sexuality. This woman is just a flat picture. There's a pane of glass between her and the bug, and yet this is like his last connection to humanity in some sense, his last connection to anything that meant anything to him when he was human. And so that's the thing in his room that he wants to save. Pretty disturbing. <laughs> So along with that goes any kind of sexual fantasy. And we all know what this is. And we all know that this is, again, a wrong use of our sexuality. 
you were made male or female for God first, and then second for your spouse, not for your own pleasure, not to sit and imagine something, oh, this would be fun. And then finally, masturbation. Using your own sexual organs to produce some kind of orgasmic sensation, this is also forbidden by the commandment now. You will find people who say, oh, masturbation isn't mentioned in Scripture. It doesn't need to be because the Bible tells us what sexuality is for, that God made us for him and for our spouse. And then to, to short-circuit that loop and try to derive sexual pleasure from yourself unaided is a sin against this commandment. So, any questions on that point? Because I know that this final point is going to take a little more time to explain everything. Right? Nobody in Sunday school wants to be the one who says, well, I think about porn. That, you know, <laughs> give us the learned disquisition. I didn't think we could talk. I thought this was like you're preaching. No, <laughs> no, that's Sunday talk. school. <laughs> Ask whatever you want, Pat. <laughs> I was thinking I was safe is what I did. <laughs> I just have to sit here with a red face. That's all I have to do. But in many of those bullets, you can think of specific scriptures that, that sort of made mm-hmm. that. I was thinking of, is it Job chapter 30 or 31? Yeah. about if I've looked at my friend's wife. Yeah, I made a covenant with my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Think about the, uh, gosh, I was reading the article about the proposition that was passed at the general conference, and the, the guy that uh, wrote about it referred to the king in the Old Testament who, who uh, he deported the sodomites that were yeah. sodomites in the land. Asa, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we could talk about the state dimension of all this. What should the law say? And there are still legal disabilities on the books for a number of these sins. Mm-hmm. Like a member of Alexa's church in Virginia was like a colonel in the army and he committed adultery against his wife and supposedly it was said in the church that if his commanding officer was told he could be busted down to private for that sin. That's totally contrary to the army regulations. Mm. So, that's good. We need laws like that. Well, finally, we'll come to the sins against life element of the seventh commandment. What else falls under adultery and I have a brochure here for those who are interested in the more scientific side of this. Speaking of contraceptives, contraceptives were used during the month of conception for 48% of unintended pregnancies. There's the stat on the front. So that is relevant because contraception 
comes underneath this seventh commandment as a sin against life. Sexuality is for God and for your spouse. That's its purpose in one sense. And in the other sense, what is its purpose? Its purpose is reproduction. To give the life that you enjoy to another, to a child. So that is as one flame kindles another without losing its own flammability or flameness, without losing its own fire. So God has given us the unique ability, or I should say the glorious ability, that all living things have to reproduce another of our kind without losing our own life. You give life while retaining life. You make that copy without damaging the original. So, sexuality is for the purpose of reproduction. We know this through natural revelation and also through special revelation. Male and female, he created them, everything reproducing after its kind, as it says over and over in Genesis 1. Well, sexuality then is intimately related to life. Sexuality is about giving life. So, what does that mean? We're not going to talk about contraception in general. People have different opinions on that. And evidence, I think, is somewhat finely balanced. But there are certainly particular contraceptives that are utterly off-limits for the Christian because they are abortifacients. So what does abortifacient mean? It's just a Latin word for causes abortion. Just like maleficent means causes evil. So that facient word is facet in Latin. It means to do or make. So an abortifacient is something that causes an abortion. And the birth control pill is or can be an abortifacient. So what do I mean? Well, the pill has two effects. It is intended, first of all, to prevent ovulation. The pill is designed to interrupt the hormonal cycle and prevent the monthly release of the egg. Then the pill's second effect is to make the uterus inhospitable, to change the lining and the pH balance inside the uterus so that the egg, if it does manage to be released and fertilized, cannot find a home in the uterus, but will die and be washed out. So, right, the question is, therefore, does the pill prevent ovulation every time? And the answer is obvious. No, it does not. So, according to the pamphlet here, the birth control pill is 91 to 99% effective at preventing pregnancy. And they cite the CDC article on contraception for that. So depending on the study, 91 to 99% effective. So if it's 91% effective in some studies, or even 99% effective, that means, obviously, that in 100 months, the typical user will get pregnant one of those months. So that is, right, one pregnancy every eight years. And... 
That means, in other words, that both effects of the pill were defeated in that particular month. The, the egg was released and the uterus was not hostile. So how often then should we imagine that the pill fails in at least one of the effects? That is, it fails to prevent ovulation. The egg is fertilized. Life begins at conception. The fertilized egg comes into the uterus and there finds a hostile environment, no place to implant, and dies. That's what I mean when I say that the pill is an abortifacient. The pill makes the uterus hostile such that whenever there is a fertilized egg, which, right, according to the numbers here, would be at least once in eight years, but most likely at least twice that often, once every four years, when that happens, the pill produces or brings about an abortion, the termination of the life of a fertilized egg. So the same goes for the IUD, the intrauterine device, and the IUD has only one purpose. It's designed strictly to prevent the implantation of the fertilized egg. It does nothing to prevent the release of the egg. And so, right, worst case scenario, an IUD user can be releasing an egg and getting pregnant every month, every other month, and then losing that pregnancy after that pregnancy. So, what, six abortions a year, something like that, for as long as that IUD is present. What does this say about the IUD? Implant, 99% effective at present, preventing pregnancy, but again, that is strictly based on preventing the egg from implanting. So we can go further and say that all hormonal birth control is abortifacient because all hormonal birth control, that is all birth control that works by altering the woman's hormones, ends up by making the uterus hostile to the fertilized egg and therefore is capable of bringing about abortions. Now there are some OBs who will say I'm pro-life and who will resist strongly the statement that the pill is an abortifacient. And they would say, you can't say is, you have to say can be. Now, there is a difference in meaning there. That is, every time you take the pill, you are not performing an abortion. But I think it's still warranted to say that can be and is ultimately boil down to the same thing. Potentially is means actually is given enough time. So this is not generally known in Christian circles. It should be. Yeah, the science is out there and has been known for over a century and more. I've got to say, uh, in 60 some years, it's the first time I've heard it. Yeah, well, it's not presented, right? And when I try to preach on it, I'm told not to. No. no I, yeah. Not by the church. No, Alexa told me this has got to be Sunday school, and I'm like, that's ridiculous. She said, call Jonathan Morris. He has little kids. Ask him. Jonathan's like, Alexa's right. 
think oh. I want to answer any questions. Afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> so here we are. Yeah. Yep. So here we are. So then, do I have to repent because I was on the pill? Yeah, that's. Uh... Well, I think it's something to think about for sure, and say, in my ignorance. I did this thing. I mean, yeah, if this... Well, sin of omission. Yeah, at the very least. But yeah, this sermon should, especially in our culture, be making all of us say, ooh, guilty, guilty, right? Check, check, check. Oh, I don't... haven't just read about that sin. I haven't just read about that one either. We're seeing people on TV doing it. But... Yeah, it's just something to realize that, wow, in my youth, in my ignorance, I was just told, hey, this is a side effect free thing. So is that why, and I was raised Catholic, and you, you didn't take the pill? Yeah. You the rhythm method. I wonder if that was their thinking. Yeah, that's part of it. Though they will go further and say it belongs properly under the seventh commandment because every sexual act, every act of sexual intercourse should be open to life because it is a reproductive act. And so if you try to eliminate the reproductive part from it, you are destroying the nature of what that act is. So also including a tubal ligation or vasectomy? Well, that's what our friends in the Roman Church say. So those methods are not abortifacient. Because right. they do prevent the release of the egg okay, right. or the sperm. So, yeah, I don't know. I've read quite a bit on both sides, I guess, mm-hmm. of the overall birth control debate. I'm not totally sure that sterile sex is a sin, but it also seems really odd to say you have the right to sterile sex. Really? you sure that's within the original intention? Mm-hmm. So the Supreme Court says we have the right to sterile sex, right? 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut. The state has no business deciding whether married couples have the right to use contraceptives. Right? The state has no interest in whether sex is fruitful or not, according to the Supreme Court. But you can only say that if you don't care about whether something is abortifacient. So then assisted reproduction is also a sin against life. What do I mean by assisted reproduction? Well, I'm talking specifically about uh, what's usually called IVF or in vitro fertilization which, again, that vitro just means glass. And so to say, I'm going to get fertilized in glass sounds really dumb, but if you put it in Latin, then it doesn't sound so dumb. Uh, It just means in a Petri dish, right? So we cut open mom, we take out eggs, usually like 60 or 100 or 150 eggs. And then we get sperm, uh, sometimes from dad, if this is a married couple, sometimes solicit from a sperm donor, if this is a woman who's like, I'm 38, 
I've never found anybody. It's not going to happen now, but I really want a child, so I'm just going to try this. And then take the egg and you put it, set out all the eggs in, in glass in the Petri dish and then drop the sperm on them and fertilize them all. And then the ones that survive the process, you quickly scoop up and throw in the freezer and you've got embryos, right? You let them multiply a little bit. I don't know how many hours or days and put them in the freezer and then usually put them into mom three or four at a time, find out which one is the biggest, kill the other ones, let the biggest one be born. That's basically the, the approach to assisted reproduction. So uh, various Christian couples do try to use this when they're desperate for children and they often try to make it a little less ungodly by saying, well, we're definitely only going to use our own sperm and egg, and we're only going to fertilize three, and we're going to implant all of them separately and see if they take. Uh, we're not going to have a hundred fertilized embryos that we just put in the freezer and leave there indefinitely. And we're not going to try to see which one does the best and kill the others. We're going to give them all a chance to be born, things like that. But definitely, generation of extra embryos is totally off limits for the Christian to make children of your own or of anybody's and throw them in the freezer to just stay there forever is no kind of human life. Wouldn't that fall under sin against providence? If that's not what God wants, then you're going against what... I think so, yeah. It, but it is hard, for sure, to tell that to the sure. desperate yeah. couple. We've wanted kids for 15 years. Sob. This is the only way. Sob. Well, but then, that's what adoption, I think that's where adoption comes in. But then yeah. God created the minds of the scientists to... I mean, exactly. I mean, so there's that on the other yeah, side, yeah, right? Yeah. If God wanted us to fly, he would have given us wings. Well, instead he gave us 747s. Uh. Yeah. I mean, you can go down bunny <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I understand the providence thing, too. I mean, totally. That someone could argue. Yeah. So that's why I don't put it under a sin against providence, because wherever you come out on the human use of technology, you have to say... This is clearly wrong. This is a sin against life to make all these embryos. And so, I mean, different ethicists have different opinions on whether in vitro fertilization can ever be right. Many say, no, it's never right. Others say, well, it's right if husband and wife are the only ones giving the sperm and eggs and if they only make enough embryos that they can actually implant all of them. And if they give every embryo a shot at being born, then it's right. So, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't have a real firm opinion on it. I would lean towards it's never right. But then what that often 
comes down to then, or how that often issues is that we don't implant the embryos in mom at all. We find some poor woman who's willing to carry a child for $10,000 because that's more money than she's ever seen in her life, and we implant the embryo in her. And this should be illegal in all kinds of ways, but it isn't. It's perfectly legal in the U.S. and in most other countries. And the people who mainly use this are rich gay men, and what they're doing is really not having children. They are creating slaves. That's what we would call a bespoke human life. What do you mean they're creating slaves? Well, they buy an egg from somebody. They might fertilize it with their own sperm, or maybe not. But they're essentially buying a human being, not loving a new human being into existence, having their own they child. Want a child. They want a child. I, mean, I agree with what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, but, but objectively what they're doing is not having a child, they're buying a slave. Because okay. you're buying a child, you're hiring a woman to carry him, there have been different lawsuits, like where the surrogate mom is carrying twins, and the man paying for it says, kill one of the twins, right? Abort the weak one. And the mom says, no, I won't do it. And then they go sue each other over who has the right to that kid. Or there's the gay couple, the two, two men that I heard about recently. One of them was like, well, I have a sister, let's take her egg and then you fertilize it, he says to his partner, and then the child will be related to both of us. <laughs> no, that's not your child, that's your nephew, and you are a sicko. <laughs> exactly. uh, yeah. So, many of these, these techniques are pioneered in the animal world, and Deuce essentially does this for a living. He removes embryo or he removes eggs from from mares and then fertilizes them with sperm that he buys from various stallions that he likes, and then he has a whole stable full of kind of junk mares that are not pedigreed or anything like that, and they carry these horses. So he buys a fifteen hundred dollar mare and then implants a hundred thousand dollar embryo in her and sees if it takes. And it only takes about a third of the time, usually. So, but there are people who say, well, we can do this with animals. We can selectively breed for the exactly the characteristics we want. Why can't we do it to ourselves? Right? The power of man over nature, as C.S. Lewis says, becomes the power of some men over others. And that's totally what's going on here with surrogate pregnancy and bespoke human lives. Okay, I heard a Christian woman, well, a couple, anyway, they couldn't have children, or maybe they did, I don't remember if they had kids or not, but they ended up, they heard about these frozen embryos, mm -hmm. and they ended up uh, adopting, adopting one. and I guess, which at the time I thought, well, that's, that's brilliant, you know, I mean, yeah, well... But then it's like, hmm, no. So she carried... Yeah, and they, they adopted 
that, you know, were somehow legally adopted the embryo, had it implanted, and she carried, and they kept this, their you know, they adopted the child. Right. Yeah, I think that that would be right at this point when we have millions of people sitting yeah. in the freezer. That I don't know. It gets real you could stuff. give we them a chance. A, we know a Christian couple that have 21 frozen embryos. Mm-hmm. And they yeah. pay, a, but they can't yeah. go on forever, like after they're gone. I mean, I'm sure they're destroyed. I don't know. Yeah, when nobody pays the bill, they unplug the freezer. Yeah, but one of my, one of the pastors that I know in Denver, he and he's in a Korean church there. So he and his wife had two kids. One of the elders in their church, had, he and his wife had struggled with infertility for many years, and finally uh, went ahead and got the eggs out and the sperm out and got the embryo, and then they asked this pastor if his wife would be willing to carry their baby. And so the pastor and his wife said yes, and she carried the baby, but it, in the process of giving birth, she started to hemorrhage and ended up losing her uterus. And like, they wanted more kids, but now she has lost that in the process of trying to be kind and give to somebody else. So, yeah, mom was like, no way. Every time you bear a child, you go down into death for that child. And to and think, God's providence now. Yeah, to think that there are people out there who are so desperate that they're like, oh, $12,000, yeah, I'll carry a child for nine months. That's more money than I've ever seen. That's, or just out of, like, compassion. Yeah, misguided you know, altruism. You hear of sisters doing that for each yeah. other. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would carry a child for my sister if she was... Asking you, yeah. Yeah, well, I don't think it's necessarily always wrong to carry it, but the process that has to be gone through to get there is usually not without sin. And then, yeah, it becomes much more about making money off human desperation and an unwillingness to be content with God's providence towards you than it is really about I love children. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, some moral reflections for us. Uh, we know that these sins are wrong, right? Even if we don't talk about them, we know that we shouldn't do this. But these are almost unquestioned within Christian circles. It's really disturbing to go into Dr. Biggs's office with Alexa. And she has ads up for IUDs and pills in every room in the office. And she's a Christian. Yeah. So she asks every time, do you have any more questions for me? And I often like, well... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How can you reconcile putting in IUDs with your conscience? But I haven't asked it yet. So I know that she's not... We'll, we'll, we'll pray for you that during this next few months she'll get the courage. Yeah, I mean, maybe if we're there by Alexa's bedside for six or eight hours, 
the birth, we'll have plenty of time to chat. Because maybe she doesn't realize it. Yeah, well, she's probably I mean, never I thought about I it. I never would have, you know, maybe the IUD, I might have known that, but the other one. She went to a Jesuit university in Omaha, but who knows what the Jesuits taught her. That's right. Were, there <laughs> even, were any there. <laughs> And I never would have thought this goes with don't commit adultery. Yeah. I would have thought don't commit adultery was it, just sexual just sins. Adultery. But yeah. that's been through the whole the whole commandments yeah. has been yeah. that way. Yeah. And I thank you for that. I well, mean, I've learned so much too that our moral formation is pretty pitiful. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> we weren't taught. Unfortunately, getting worse every day. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I do have extra copies. Sorry, Pat, if you want one, you got it. Okay. Well, any other questions? I guess we are over our time here. So, Wayne, will you close us in prayer? Heavenly <laughs> Father, thank you for this day and coming together as your children to study your word. Pray, Father, you give us the strength and the knowledge to obey your laws and commandments, that we would do that joyfully. And pray, Father, that we would, you would give us wisdom and guidance through the help of the Holy Spirit working within us each day. Help us to be humble, that we can hear the Spirit talking to us and guiding us. Pray, Father, that you be with us as we come to the worship service, that our service would be pleasing to you, that uh, we would glorify your name, and that the congregation would be uplifted by hearing the word and singing hymns. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.